Hello, I'm David Oakes, and this is a slightly longer episode of Trees Are Crowd than usual. But if you're a gardener or a historian, or better still, both, you are in for a treat. So, without further ado, this is Trees Are Crowd, and this is Dr. Terry Goff. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes, and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible, including the painter who's smitten by curlew and bitten. I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. I'm very happy to say that we're recording this episode in late March. Spring has well and truly sprung, and I'm at the sublimely scented masterpiece that is Hampton Court Palace to meet the head gardener, Dr. Terry Goff. Terry started working here in the year of my birth, 1983, and was eventually made manager of estates and gardens in 1990. So for nearly three decades, Terry has followed in the footsteps of Capability Brown and has made this palace look, but most importantly, smell fit for a king. Terry, hello and welcome to Trees of Crowd. Good morning. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. So we're, we're standing next to the nursery right now. You're standing uh, in the Glasshouse Nursery. Thank you, thank you. Um, this is a very interesting area, like most places at Hampton Court, because this has actually got a tradition of growing plants for over 300 years. Oh, wow. So um, the main growing operation was by William III, um, when he extended the gardens, um, when, it, when Hampton Court became his principal palace. Sure. And we've been growing plants ever since. So every year in this nursery, we are producing around 140,000 plants every year. That's quite a few plants. It's quite a few plants. One yes. of the questions I was set to ask you later was, was how historically you were sourcing these plants. But I guess you've answered that in part, that most of it was created on site. Yes, we grow all of our plants on site. Um, a lot of the plants that we grow are actual historic varieties. Okay. Um, so we still take a lot of cuttings and we do quite a lot of seed propagation. Um, so we don't just produce all of our plants through modern means. Uh-huh. We still carry out some traditional methods of propagation. I was, I was reading about the grapevine, yep. which I think... I think that was Capability Brown who brought that it was in It was in Brown's tenure, yes. 17-something. Uh, 1768. But he brought that from a cutting from somewhere else? Yes, he was working on... Um, Brown, as you know, he was all over the show. And um, when he became head gardener here, or chief gardener, um, really the job was a bit of a sinecure for him. Sure. Um, because he ran this... Uh, this place, Hampton Court, on a contract, and he was paid £1,300 a year. Uh-huh. But of course, he was working all, all over the country, and one of the gardens that he worked on was Valentine's Park, Wanstead, Essex. Okay. And they had an ancient vine there of the Black Hamburg variety, and he was given a cutting off of this ancient vine, which he then rooted and planted in what was at the time an exotics house at Hampton Court Gardens. Now, he was a very clever guy because Brown was paid additional money for growing false fruit out of season. (laughs) So there was method in his madness. So what he did, basically, he thought, well, if I plant, if I get rid of these exotic plants, which I don't get any money for, and I plant this vine, I'm going to get get some extra coffers. (laughs) So basically, that's what he did, and that's how the vine started. We'll probably see that a bit later, won't we? Yeah, well, it's 251 years old this year. Happy birthday. So happy birthday, the vine, and we'll see you later. Great stuff. Um, should we pop into the nursery? Absolutely. Let's, let's, w- let's walk along the corridor. Super. So this obviously wasn't the, the glass house that was here originally. This is a, no, a this, modern... um, this is a 1960s um, construction. Um, but there's been several uh, glass houses and, uh, and arrangements on this site over the centuries. Um, this is uh, an old house now. Uh, by modern day standards Uh and one of the things that we are going to be looking to do in the future is to replace it with a more modern structure mainly because um, we've outgrown (laughs) we've outgrown this space and um, there's a lot of wasted space with these uh, older structures 
and uh, the newer structure will allow us to use space far more efficiently than we currently do. The other thing just to add is as well as growing 140,000 plants every year, we maintain three national collections and these are we are a national collection holder that means we are the main uh, holder of a collection of 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 the species of plants what are the three collections uh it's heliotrope lantana obviously yeah and the other one (laughs) is we have a collection for the first time uh, the nccpg who organized this allow an actual collection to be held um, as, as, as uh, instead of just one one species of plants, it is a national collection. So we've actually got Queen Mary's exotic collection of plants that has been collected from all the plant lists and the research that I did that was here over 300 years ago. And I'll, we'll walk along and I'll show you all the fantastic orange trees and things that would have been here 300 years ago. Please do. Okay, so we've come away from the fans that were... They're creating the heat, I guess, for the greenhouse. Well, basically, they are, they are keeping the glass house cool. Okay. Um, they're just extractor fans, so they're just circulating the air and keeping the air cool, because it's quite humid in here, as you it can is. feel. It's, it's lovely. I mean, it, it, it is spring, but it's a little nippy. Today. Yes, and you get these tremendous variations in temperature. But here you can see, this is part of Queen Mary's exotic collection of plants. And she had 2,000 different species. So what have we got? We've got lilies over there, I can see. There's yes, there's lilies, there's um, all sorts of, there's passion flower, mm-hmm. all sorts really. We've got um, olive trees. Uh-huh. So That's so fun. I have never seen an olive tree in flower like that before. Yes, they flower very, very well. There's so much pollen coming off it, the leaves are almost yellow. And we also get the little olives as well. Lovely. So... Do you, do you just take them home as a, a perk of the job? Or? Well, the thing is, you have, to, uh, you have to soak them in brine. Sure. You can't eat them raw off of a tree, so you soak them in brine, and uh, well, you know, it's, uh, then you get the olives. But unfortunately, in this country, we don't get the fantastically hot conditions no. as they do in the olive-producing countries. So really, they're an ornament for us. Sure. It's just to show the range of plants that was collected by Queen Mary II. And she, was she sending people out on her behalf, or was she collecting them well, herself? Or? No. What, well, actually, you were right first time. What happened was William III repealed a lot of the restrictions on the Dutch East India Company. Uh-huh. And as a quid pro quo, what he did was he, he had an arrangement where he got the pick of all the things that they were bringing back from the new worlds. So that would have been plants, it would have been animals, he had menageries, it would have been fantastic china pots. Um, so whole collections were coming to William and Mary via the Dutch East India Company. And okay. actually they were collecting exotic plants when William was the stadtholder in the Netherlands and, and, and Mary obviously was, was, was his princess, um, before they became joint monarchs of this country, e- of this country in 1689. So when they, were, when they were restored to the English throne um, uh, uh, following uh, uh, James II's uh, departure, they brought with them this fantastic craze for collecting exotic plants. It was already here, but really they accelerated it. And just to talk about what it, what it was about, as well as, as well as demonstrating botany and showmanship, it was also uh, uh, around giving your guests another experience. Mm-hmm. So you would have taken your guests to see your exotic plants in the garden, and then in the winter they would have been put in the orangery. Sure. And it would have been rather like showing your guests your 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 fine collection of artwork. Um, so it would have been it would have been a piece of of, of sort of ostentatious showmanship. Uh-huh. Look at my plants. Look at my collection. And running in tandem with that was the pot in the 17th century was as important as the plant. These mm-hmm. were living works of art. That's the best way I can describe them. And so the more precious the plant, the more, the more the ornate plant. the container. 
Uh, to the point where... Is that something you're trying to keep going now? Absolutely. Well? We, we've actually, as you can see, we've got some very ornate pots here. Most of them terracotta. Most of them terracotta, very ornate, a lot of them painted. Uh-huh. But the, 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 the prize, if you like, in our collection is we have a number of Delft pots. Okay. Beautiful blue and white glazed earthenware pots. And, and Queen Mary II was known as the Queen of Delftware. And she actually had rooms in her palaces, both in the Netherlands and at Hampton Court, which were primarily there to display Delftware and exotic plants during the winter. So I've worked out that an hour is no way going to be long enough for this <laughs> podcast. Um, so I guess my question is, when you started working here, were you as much of a historian as you are now? Were you a gardener? Like, where did you start? Where did you grow up? Let's, well, let's go all the well, way back. Well, basically, I, I grew up in the leafy suburbs of Battersea. <laughs> and um, not much... Um, uh, my, my local part was Battersea Park. Okay. My interest in horticulture started when I got a job as a Saturday boy in a garden centre. And I then progressed to work full-time in the nursery trade. Uh And I was in that trade for four years. And then I took a change in, not not profession, but in uh, in work. And I went to work for the Royal Parks in 1975 up in London. And I had a great time up there. Worked up there for eight years, going through the grades, working in... Where were you based primarily? Well, I was based in St. James's Park. Then I went to Hyde Park. I worked in Kensington Gardens, did some working in Buckingham Palace, and um, did some work in Regent's Park. And then um, And really just just as a sort of a... Well, I came through the ranks. I started off as a gardener. I ended up as a superintendent of Hyde Park. And then I transferred here in 1983 as deputy and became the senior person here in 1990. So I have spent my whole working life from the age of nearly 16 in horticulture. I don't know. That is my job. um, In terms of... So I came here as a horticulturalist, Uh but my, my love of garden history started when I was in the Royal Parks because... They are very historic sites as well, mm-hmm. very historic landscapes. And to be perfectly honest with you, one thing I've learned about this type of management is that if you don't understand the history of, 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 a, of a garden, you don't know how to manage it. Because mm-hmm. our job is we are, we are custodians, and these jobs are about stewardship. You come here and you're doing a job of caring and looking after these wonderful places for a set period of time. Today, you are part of the evolution and the care of these wonderful places. But when I retire, I become part of history. Mm-hmm. And I've got a board outside my office. I've seen it. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I'm, the, 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 it's very sobering, that board, because I'm the only one alive on it. <laughs> so that's the first thing. So it, 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 well, it's sort of, we're all mortal. On that board is a list of all the head gardeners going back 300 years. This is my time with my team. I mean, the people on that list are incredible. There's the aforementioned Capability Brown is on there. I think the thing that I noticed was that your title has changed. Yes, the, so char- the title of the job has changed. The, the reason why the, jo- the, the job title changes is the administration has changed. Uh-huh. Um, if you start with the, the, the first people on the list, such as George London and Henry Wise, they worked directly to more or less to the sovereign. Mm-hmm. And then when the Office of Works and the Office of Public Buildings and Works, when all these administrations changes, the job title changes. Sure. And so um, I started off, my, my job title changed. I was, I was superintendent of parks. Mm-hmm. And then when Historic Royal Palaces was formed, I became head of gardens and estates. So it really, you tend to get a change in, in the name of, of, of the job holder uh-huh. when the administration changes. So, yes, and uh, there's some fantastic gardeners on there. George London, Henry Wise, great gardeners. I mean, everyone thinks that uh, Lancelot Capability Brown was the first brand in terms of garden, but London and Wise mm. were before him running the Brompton Nursery. Well, the thing that I've always found with Capability is that he sort of what made him famous was he got rid of a lot of the conventions he did he um, he was he was um he was a placemaker to describe that's how he described himself mm-hmm. a placemaker 
Um, other people would call him a landscape improver. Sure. Um, what he did was he he changed the formal gardens of this country and turned them into a natural landscape. That wow. that was his that was the the way he worked, and and he, he always had a. A, a set rule. It was rather. I had interesting um, uh, conversations with a, a number of garden experts talking about Brown because we celebrated his 300th anniversary of his. Two um, years ago, last year. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. And we, we had a big symposium here, and we were talking, you know, about Brown. And everyone was saying, well, he had this. This formula, you know, he had a lake and big sort of this serpentine and, like yeah, winding lake. Yeah, you know. winding roads, mm-hmm. clumps of trees and, and, and so on and so forth. And some people have dumbed him down to say, well, actually, he, he was boring. He, he just did this. And, but it's, the man was a genius. And, and the, the reason, it's, it's rather like me giving you the ingredients of how to bake a cake. <laughs> You know, and you go away and you'll make a different job of it yeah. than me. And so it wasn't so much the, 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 the plans that he followed. It was how he interpreted the landscape and how he made those plans work to fit the various sites. That was his genius. That was his skill. So, but he didn't really do that here, I guess. No, he didn't. As he and said, he was outsourced earlier, but there's, there's no... The, the grand garden here, the one with the canal coming up, it sort of seems more French. Than it, exactly. I mean, in terms of Brown, uh, the reason he didn't change things, there's a great saying that he was supposed to have uh, been quoted as saying that he didn't change the gardens of Hampton Court out of respect for himself and his profession. The truth is that he was not paid to do so. <laughs> okay, it's he always was, money, isn't it? He always was paid thirteen hundred pounds a year, and he had a maintenance contract. Hence the grapevine. Exactly, and he stuck to it. Um, and to change this very formal landscape would have cost a tremendous amount of money to execute, and nobody was prepared to pay Brown that amount of money to do it. Uh, the reason is uh, George III hated Hampton Court. Mm-hmm. He wasn't interested in Hampton Court. And we know that he got Brown to carry out a number of improvements at Kew Palace, which the king paid for out of his own pocket. Okay. So Brown would have changed things had he been paid for it. But here he was only ever the um, chief gardener managing a contract. Now, to go back to what, to, to what you said earlier, the gardens here are what, what has been described. This is the quintessential um, Anglo-Dutch garden. Shall we head to somewhere that is representative of that? Let's, let's head out onto the East Gardens, and there you can see the Baroque layout in its true splendour. Perfect. Take me there. Okay. So, yes, it's... Um, it's a fantastic place. I mean, when you when you get here, you realise. Well, e- even just walking in through the main gate just a moment yeah. ago, uh, we bumped into Barbara, who was planting some wild hyacinths oh, along the main. Yeah. yeah. And they were amazing. They looked just like bluebells. Yeah. We had a bit of a debate over whether or not they were or not, but they were stunning. Well, the 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 uh, hyacinth orientalis, the original hyacinth, looks like a bluebell, mm-hmm. and um, that's one of the challenges that we have because. When we've restored parts of the gardens back to their original date, uh-huh. we've tried to be authentic. Sure. So we've tried to incorporate the plants that would have been there of the period. So we haven't just... Does it get hard to source them now? I mean, with so yes, much sort of crossbreeding... Yes, very and... much so. So a lot of the time... You try to stay as faithful to the design and the planting as possible, but you have to concede, and there's a lot of in the spirit of mm. that we use. So we, we will try to achieve the same effect, but not necessarily with, this, the, with the exact same. So we'll use tulips where tulips were used, but some of those old varieties, because tulips are notoriously infected with tulip fire uh-huh. and other diseases and viruses 
it becomes very, very difficult to use authentic tulips that were here 300 years ago. So what you do is you find a tulip of the same shape, uh-huh. the same colour that would have been used, and you use those. Colour, you see, 300 years ago was not used how we use colour today. Uh-huh. The way we use colour today has been inspired by artists. So things like the colour wheel and complementary and contrasting colours are a relatively modern phenomenon. So were uh, older gardeners leaving things more open to nature? Just sort of well, taking... what they did was the gardens that were laid out for William and Mary, for example, the former Brock Gardens, the colours in that garden would have been symbolic. Uh-huh. So purple would have been for nobility, white for purity. So they used colour as, as, sim- as for symbolism, uh-huh. not so much for effect. Sure. And in the William and Mary garden, or the Williamite parterre that we will see later on, the colours in that garden are orange, white and blue, primarily. Uh-huh. So that's the, um, that's the effect that we're trying to achieve. For everyone listening in, we've, we've literally been talking as we've been walking through Hampton Court. So we went past the chapel, through the fountain garden. Like We're now out in... The, in well, where are we? Wow. Well, this is, we call this the East Gardens, but it, uh, the more correct name is the Great Fountain Garden. Uh-huh. The reason for that is that um, under William and Mary, this huge area, over 20 acres, was created into a huge parterre garden. Uh-huh. Now, to describe what that is, if you can imagine a giant arabesque carpet uh-huh. pattern in plants, box hedging, coloured gravels, topiary. This created this magnificent picture that, that, that was designed to be viewed from the first floor of the royal apartments. What, what was that? Was that just a sitting room? or was that's, it... that's the drawing room. Okay. And the idea was that you looked down on a part here, and then you, you the could pick out the, the patchwork. Pa- exactly. Yeah, okay. Now, parterres were very, very important, and they were a real craze at this time. You, you know, at Versailles, mm-hmm. Hatlow, all the great gardens of Europe had these magnificent parterre gardens. Because really, what they did was they demonstrated uh, not only showmanship, but they also demonstrated the sovereign's power over nature. I'll give you an example. If you're standing here, mm-hmm. you've got the Longwater Canal. Yep. That was laid out for Charles II. That's are three we, quarters of a mile long, that are is. Are we facing south We're facing east. East. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have got that more yeah, on Yeah, that's east. Yeah, so <laughs> eastwards, that's three quarters of a mile long, and that's the longest uh, man-made um, or- ornamental canal in is, this country. So is that filling from the Thames? Uh, it? No, it comes off the Longford River, which was another interesting story. That's 12 miles long, uh-huh. and that was dug, dug by, for King Charles I to bring ambitious clean water to Hampton Court for a water gardens, okay. but unfortunately never materialised. never happened. But so his son, Charles II, took the water and created this wonderful long canal, uh-huh. and he planted the first avenue. When William and Mary were restored to the throne, um, what you see is William loving this canal uh-huh. and loving the riverside uh, situation of Hampton Court because he was Dutch and he was asthmatic and this was clean air, water. So he didn't change that and he used the long water as the centre line for rebuilding the, the Baroque palace that you see behind me. Uh-huh. But, so the whole thing linked together. But in the process of that, they got rid of the parterre? Because you don't have the... Well, the parterre followed. OK. So what he did was he used this semicircular area and uh, William brought in a, a, his chief designer, a chap by the name of Daniel Moreau, uh-huh. and he laid out this elaborate parterre. Now, Moreau was a Huguenot. He'd been trained in France... And he laid out this incredible parterre. And it had 13 fountains in it. 
But no. the problem was, unfortunately, there was insufficient pressure on the Longford River. More going. And um, when Queen Anne succeeded William, she removed 12 of the 13 fountains, and that is the surviving basin that you see today. So all these gardens have overlays, uh-huh. and these yew trees. Yes. Let's talk about these. So I, I love yew trees. Yep. They're one of them. We think they're probably the oldest tree. Um, in terms of surviving long enough, they've got so many connotations to, to, agree, to Christ and to folklore. And to, I agree with that. They're just amazing. With all the noises that people have been hearing, like the gardens are being constantly maintained. Absolutely. So there was, there was a chainsaw earlier. That's that. I think that's a ride on mower. Yeah. Um, like I've I've seen in this morning alone, maybe I know twenty gardeners. Well, I've got fifty here. 50, okay. 50. So where are the other 30? Are they showing? Well, well it, it, the, the thing is, what you have to remember is we've got 60 acres in old money of formal gardens, and we have 750 acres of deer park and estate. Okay. We also look after three miles of the Thames River Bank on the old Middlesex side. So we're looking after an 800-acre estate uh-huh. with these, uh, the, these 50 staff. Most of the work is around these very, very formal gardens. The thing is with gardens, the more formal they are, the more work is involved. So we are constrained by the historic design of this wonderful place. But then again, that's why people come here. Indeed. Now, your yew trees... Let's let's go over to one. Yeah, let's have a look at these these fantastic... I mean, they're like great big pepper pots on legs, aren't they, really? Mm. They're just... There's something sort of Alice in Wonderland there, They're they're very tactile, and they're, as you say, they're very long-lived trees. Would you... Is this this topiary in the way that they're shaped? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when when William died, Queen Anne changed the layout pretty much to what you see today. Uh But the trees would have been small items of topiary. So what you're looking at now is a surviving layout of this garden that's existed from about 1707. Uh Now, the yew trees. Now, these were kept as topiary right the way through the early Georgian period, and then Mr. Brown comes along, Uh Mr. Lancelot Brown. Now, Brown managed a contract, but the one thing that Brown wouldn't do is he wouldn't clip topiary. Now, you probably had hundreds of trees in these gardens that were undergoing topiary, and Brown just wouldn't clip them. Mm -hmm. And so they became, instead of being items of topiary, they became very loose. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get to the Victorian era, when Hampton Court was open to the public for the first time, um, then uh, Hampton Court was open to the public in 1838. And when they started to plant up all these wonderful, colourful flower beds, Mm -hmm. which was a craze that, one of the crazes that was started at Hampton Court, they encountered all sorts of problems with these trees, and they battled on with it. And then problems, the, as in they were becoming different sizes, or they were they basically, were or? yeah, basically what what was happening is they were they were overgrowing the beds, sure. and they were becoming very misshapen and quite ugly. How dare nature take its own course? The problem is, you're asking nature to take over from something that started life as a piece of topiary. Sure. And that is the problem. If you look here, they're all multi-stemmed. Mm-hmm. If we'd have grown them with the intention of being natural, then they wouldn't look like this. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? So we had trees that started life topiaried, were then left to grow, to wild and then. then were retopiaried again in the 1920s. There's a very interesting story. Um, during the First World War, all the beds were stripped out because there was no one to look after them. Everyone was fighting. There was no men. Sure. When the war was over, there was a decision that they weren't going to reinstate the beds back at Hampton Court, and there was a a, a hue and cry from the local community. A parliamentary committee was set up that came to Hampton Court. They looked at this garden. They said, well, actually, we think you should put all the flower beds back, but not only that, you should... Re, you should start to reclip the topiary and not only that, replace the missing ones. Uh-huh. So what you see here now is some of these trees are from uh, Queen Anne's date, uh-huh. so they're 300 years old, some of these, and the smaller, smaller ones, ones date from the 1920s. So oh, okay. 
what we so what we what you well, have that's here, nice in itself isn't yeah. it to have that cross heritage and the story being held through through the plants that are growing. what you find is this is a multi-layer all these gardens have different layers they're all significant so what you have here now is you have a garden which is has a baroque framework you know we have the wonderful wrought iron tissue screens mm-hmm. we have the fountains we have the statuary the gravel paths the topiary uh, but what we have is a Victorian stroke Edwardian style of planting. Uh-huh. And that, is, that has been the case since the garden was opened to the public in 1838. Well, fantastic. I mean, so, the fact that they're then surrounding a palace that in itself has been adapted and extended and burnt down and then <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Life goes on. And I mean, we've got, four, we've got just to give you a, a, just a sure, sure. little statistic here, we've got 50 flower beds on this section alone. Oh, wow. Which have to be planted twice a year. So, I've got, I've got a million questions, <laughs> and I don't have the time. So, uh, prioritising. Um, if, if Capability Brown refused to do topiary, when you took over in 1990, mm-hmm. what did you bring to the gardens? What is it that you insisted on doing your own way? What did you want to change? Where is your personal footprint in this estate? Well, what I what I inherited was 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 a, was, was a lovely garden. Mm-hmm. But what had happened is, because we'd been part of a Royal Parks organisation, you tended to get too much too much of the sameness repeated across all of the sites. Mm-hmm. So, for example, they would use the same type of fencing in all of the parks. Okay. The same litter bin, the same bench. And what I felt had happened here was that Hampton Court had lost its individual identity. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to bring back all those original things that had made Hampton Court probably the greatest garden in England and one of the greatest gardens in Europe 300 years ago. So it was about restoring. What were We produced a conservation management plan that looked at the history of this place mm-hmm. and we looked at what were the opportunities to put back some of these wonderful things that had gradually been municipalised. Mm-hmm. And we started off... I cut my teeth... This was my first job. In 1990 was, Terry, we're going to restore King William III's Privy Garden. And that's what we're looking at right now. And that's what you're looking at now. Right now, on cue. Congratulations. The, <laughs> the catalyst was in 1986. We had a disastrous fire here. And it took out a lot of this south wing because this was this is the king's apartments, uh-huh. and the other part was the queen's apartments. Okay. So that sadly caused a tremendous amount of damage. Now it was completely restored, and it was restored back beyond its pre-fire damage condition. And we then asked when we were writing the conservation plan, well. What about this garden? Because the garden had changed. It was, it was, it, it was really a large Victorian shrubbery okay. that people didn't really walk through. They went from that gate to that gate. So right across the facade of the palace, right ignoring the, the garden the And ignored the garden. So we looked at the history. We did a chronology because the first garden that was laid out here was for Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you heard of him. Infamous Henry. Very heraldic garden. Mm-hmm. Then it was swept away by his daughter, Elizabeth I. Heard of her. She had a garden of topiary. And then it was changed for Charles I, who had a garden of statuary, <laughs> which was also enjoyed by Cromwell, who lived here. And then There's something kind of wonderful about each monarch having their own particular kind of tastes. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, it makes me wonder what Elizabeth II, what her favourite kind of garden is. Well, yeah. I mean, or whether she, she has an opinion. She, she tries very hard not to have opinions. She, 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 she does, but she, she is a great garden lover. Uh-huh. And I know that uh, from speaking with her head gardener at, um, at Buckingham Palace. Uh-huh. She is a, a real lover of, of gardens and plants. And so you get to William and Mary... And first of all, William and Mary laid out a temporary garden here, mainly for Queen Mary II's exotics to be stood out in the summer. Okay. William so brought out in their in their the in their containers, sure. and they were laid out in what we could more or less. It was a garden of it was called Gazon Coupe, 
which is this, it is basically a turf, cut turf parterre, uh-huh. where you get the patterns cut into the grass and it's filled with coloured gravels. You can see... The fleur-de-lis there. Yeah. Yeah. But it, you, t- to enjoy this garden, first, uh, remember, the parterres were always placed under the principal windows of a above. palace, so you can view them from above. And here you can see this garden was when uh, Mary II died in 1694, William stopped his plans at Hampton Court for a few years and then had another series of plans that started around 1698. This garden was created between 1700 and 1702. Mm -hmm. There's a fantastic story about this garden. Um, William comes back from the Netherlands because he, he, he only came here in the winter. And he spent most of his summers in, in, his, in his Dutch palaces. He came back and everyone had finished this garden. Dear old Henry Wise, the head gardener. And William is, a, is a reported to have looked out that window and said, I can't see the river. <laughs> and so poor old Henry Wise and his team ended up lowering the garden even further at the river end so that when the job was finished, they'd lowered the river end by eight feet. Oh, so, so this bank that we're standing on was yeah. originally all the way to the uh, river end. It basically, been... you can... Well, it, it's done gradually. There's uh-huh. a real step at the end, which is really brilliantly disguised. You can't see it at all. You can't it. see it at all. It's all about perspectives. And that oh, was, I see. It's just, yeah. just behind the fountain. Absolutely. It dips down. About... It dips down. Oh. So when you're up here, you can't really pick it out. It looks as though it's a flat Yeah, it summit. goes all the way through. But no, it, it isn't. It's all about perspectives. And basically what they have done is they have disguised that beautifully so that when you stand on the top of the, uh, 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 the roof or King's Apartments, you can now see the river. Amazing. Um, let's just let that John Deere mini buggy go past. <laughs> Bit of advertising there. John Deere, if you want to be a sponsor of this podcast, uh, you can reach me at <laughs> david at treesacrowd.fm. As you can see, there's a lot of activity going on and... Uh, Around a place like this, you know, tree work, grass cutting, planting. Endless, but the rewards are visible. Well, you can see that, you know, the the fruits of our labours is what you see today. And uh, we've got to gap up a few box there. But basically, it's a pretty impressive spring display. Absolutely stunning. Even with that statue wrapped up, I mean, it's... Yes, well, the, the statues are wrapped because they are Carrera marble. Sure. And they are wrapped in a material called Tyvek. And the reason... It stops you, them cracking? Or? Well, it protects them, exactly. Sure. Because it stops them from fissuring and cracking. Years ago, we boxed them. We used to box these statues. Um, but, of course, boxing is ugly. Mm-hmm. It's also potentially dangerous because you could damage the statue. Sure. The beauty about the Tyvek is that you, you can, still see the shape of them. Exactly. Yeah. You get that lovely you get form, silhouette. And you so you, even if you're not here when they're unwrapped... You can look at it and you can say, wow, yeah, I, I, it, it adorns the garden so, as it was originally intended to so do. So you're the head gardener of, of everything that I can see around me. Absolutely. And you, you and your predecessors have either followed the, the whims of, of monarchs or the whims of historic royal palaces. Well, in my case, the whims of historic <laughs> royal, royal palaces. But then again, you know, we are, we're very fortunate in that because we have... The royal patronage, We're, you know, Prince Charles has been here many, many times. Mm-hmm. The royal family have been here many, many times. And they've been great supporters of the, the work that we've done. And they really support, particularly the restoration work that we've done. Well, they seem to be championing your sort of research and your historical bent in order to follow that through. Absolutely. So, I mean, the great thing now, if you look at this, you have a Baroque palace that overlooks a Baroque, Baroque garden. garden. So when you're in, within the interiors, yeah. you get that feeling that you really are stepping back 300 years and when you come into this garden it, what I like about it is it, you almost feel as though you're, you're in continental Europe it doesn't seem English at all, no, not at all. it seems completely continental now, a lot of people say, oh, I don't like formal gardens. And <laughs> I'm not a fashion person. I, I, I well, think that... They I'll, can go I'm, to Bushy Park if they want something a little well, less formal, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a believer in good taste, and I think that a beautifully laid-out formal garden, if it's done well, is as beautiful as any informal garden. I think they've all got their merits. So, without making this sound like a busman's holiday, do you have a garden yourself at home? I do. And how, do. what do you do behind closed doors? What is your garden? Well, my garden is a mixture of flower beds and what was formerly a football pitch for my two sons, <laughs> who are now who are now grown up men. But my eldest son, I uh, you know, I've got two grandchildren, 
Um, I, I never wanted to get into a situation where I was shouting at my kids to get out the flower beds. Sure. So I segregated the garden. They had their run-around area, their football pitch, one side and the flower beds the other. So it, it, the front is different to the back of the house. But, what, um, what do your family think about your job? They think that it's... Well, it's, it's a good question. I mean, because I live on the job, it's not so much a job, it's your way of life. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, if I'm going out with my wife in the car and I see something, I think, oh, and she just says, oh, can you switch off for five minutes? You know, <laughs> because you really, you, you know, you, you eat, sleep and breathe a job like this. Uh-huh. It is your way of life and um, it is your passion. And you become, your sense of ownership is, is almost infectious. You... you I think anyone listening to this will yeah. can, can hear that. Yeah, it's just, you, you, it, you know, you feel it's yours, but you know one day you're going to have to hand it, get hold of the baton and say to somebody else, there you go, my dear lady or fellow, and, you know, keep up the good work. And, Did- my, and really, the key for me is um, people ask me, you know, you know what, what do you want to be remembered by? Quite simply not screwing the place up Hmm. i want to hand this place over in a better state than what i inherited it and when you are when you're when your job stewardship and you're a custodian that really is the most important part of your job Mm -hmm. to do things and for me it's about doing things professionally and in an informed way so that i haven't destroyed or compromised any of the work that's gone before from people before me that is of significance and I think that you have to respect all of those people on that board by my office mm-hmm. and say this place is a contribution of all of these people's efforts. Do the 50 people that work under you here all feel that same ethos? Do you instill that in them somewhere? Absolutely. Do you beat the, them with rigid sticks? or <laughs> Don't need to. They, people work here because they love it. And um, I, I watched a short documentary online about it, and it seemed like everyone had been here for 10, 20, 30 years. Oh, Once they come here, they uh, stay. Uh, unbelievable. Um, we had a chap retire a couple of years ago. He'd been here 50 years. Oh, wow. Um, he had an RHS long service medal, and they had to give him a bar for it. <laughs> He'd been here so long. Um, it, it, it's their way of life. They, sure. they, it, it's in you. It's, it's in your blood. I've often said that if you cut them in half, they'd be like a stick of rock and they'd have Hampton Court written through the middle of them. <laughs> it's, it's, it's infectious. It does get into you. This whole place just gets into you. Is And you care passionately about it. Should we walk on to, uh, yes. to another garden? Let's walk through to the... Um, the pond gardens. So, I mean, this is a. Uh, I completely understand if you don't want to answer this question. No, sure. If I if I ran this garden and I yep. had my own private garden yep. and there were particular plants that I thought were amazing, mm-hmm. I might take a sneaky little cutting and take it home. Yep. Is that something that you've ever considered? Um, I mean, that, that's what's so wonderful about plants is they have a. They have a trajectory. Like they do. A, like a line on a map. You can they see do. where they've gone. I mean, with, um, we've had members of the public take cuttings and bits and pieces. Uh-huh. But overall... And that's when the constable grabs them at the exit and shakes well, them down. Well, yeah. I, I mean, overall, I must say, in all the years I've been here, the respect by the public for these gardens is incredible. Mm-hmm. They really do respect it. The local residents love this place. They feel incredibly privileged to live near it. And the public respect is, is excellent. Yes, you get some people doing a few things they shouldn't do, but it, it, it's not because they're doing it because they're, they're trying to be devious or no. any criminality involved to it. it. It is really because some people just need educating sometimes. Sure. And um, it, it's quite an honour, really, that they feel that they want to imitate or take something away. What we've been doing to counter that is that we've been trying to give a piece of the garden away to the visitor. So what we do, all the surplus plants that we have in our nursery, we sell to the public. We have a wonderful kitchen garden where all the produce, which is all heritage varieties, Mm -hmm. we sell all the produce to the public. And all the grapes from the grapevine are sold to the public. So the way we do it is we try to give people a little bit of these gardens. So I think, is that an orangery we're now looking at now? Yes, that orangery was built in 1700, uh, by, uh, designed by William Talman, one of the great architects working for Sir Christopher Wren. Um, he, he, funny enough, in the, in the records it was called 
the large greenhouse. This is interesting. Uh huh. You look at this and you think, ah, oh, an Elizabethan knot garden. Well, it is a knot garden, but. but it was laid out by our first curator, really, a chap by the name of Ernest Law. Mm-hmm. Now, Law was a Tudor stroke Elizabethan revivalist and he wrote the history of Hampton Court but he was very keen on gardens and he designed this okay and if you look up there you can see ER 15 Elizabeth Elizabeth Regina Uh he believed that Elizabeth I looked out that window down onto a knot garden now what archaeological archaeological evidence he had or research evidence we will never know <laughs> so it's a bit of a pastiche on his part but well, it is an it's a 1924 well, not garden <laughs> but i mean who knows what he found? i mean there's well, that there, recently there were in the, all the the heat of the summertime you had all of those old patterns coming up absolutely from absolutely from, from drones the aerial drones yeah. yes no and that was amazing seeing that, all those hidden ancient gardens that have survived chatsworth they saw <gasps> the parterres there so really what it shows you that that just under the surface it was really like when we did the privy garden uh-huh. just under the surface it's there. There's a record of history, like like the line of rock going through the people who work here. There's Absolutely. going all the way through the soil. It's just incredible, and so this. So it's not just about respecting ancient history. It's about respecting Modern Edwardian history. history uh, you know, Ernest Law, mm-hmm. a great man. So this. What I love about this part of the gardens is you've got this eclectic mix. Here we've got the Grace and Favour Orchard. Uh-huh. You've cut now, a hole in the side of the head so people right, can so look people through. That's right, so people can peek through and sit and read because this would have been used for many... When Hampton Court Are they ceased, apple trees? Apple trees, pear trees. I think you can smell the blossom. They're just coming through. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Um, when Hampton Court ceased to be a lived-in royal palace after the reign of George II... Um, George III declared that it should become by grace and favour. Mm-hmm. So he opened up all these apartments as residents for, for people that had served the country. And basically it, become, it became a glorified sort of old folks' home in a way. <laughs> which worked really well until which, one of them burnt a bit of the palace down. Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. But, for, you know, there was, there was many, many grace and favour residents. And so that really reflects what this garden was, you know, like in the grace and favour era. Uh-huh. And then you get this, which is... Um, We're back the, to the hyacinths from all earlier. All these walled areas here originally were Henry VIII's fish ponds. Oh, wow. So, basically, they were for the pr- producing fish for the Tudor kitchens. Oh, so they, were, they weren't ornamental fish, they were definitely to be eaten. Oh, they were to be eaten, but this was an ornamental area called the pond yard. Okay. So you would have had lots of heraldic king's beasts carved in stone all around these ponds. And that's what's been re-put back inside the palace there's the Henry VIII beasts we yeah, might be getting the little chapel the chapel court garden exactly. that, the reason we did chapel court was to try and show people what everyone used to say where can I see the Tudor gardens well sorry madam they're all gone, they're all gone. but we got some really interesting archaeology well they didn't want to hear that so <laughs> we thought well let's create something in chapel court which is a really nice setting uh, to give them an idea of what Henry's privy garden was like, really like. but here um, then, then these, uh, po- the, the pond yard was drained down and William and Mary used this as the setting out areas for their exotic plants mm-hmm. their, their, their Queen Mary's exotic collections and then gradually when um, the gardens opened to the public and this became a garden of display um, Ernest Law who I mentioned earlier was, worked very very hard with a head gardener and um, he took a great interest in this, and, and he and the head gardener of the time, Mr. Marlowe, mm-hmm. designed this and changed this and, and designed these pond gardens, which this have really lovely. been uh, has really been. And this garden, and also the work of, of, of Ernest Law, this inspired the huge uh, pond garden at Kensington Gardens. Uh, which was created in 1908. So sure. really, it's a larger version of this. Of this. Sort you can of see it sunken, now, now you've mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, it's got similarities because the one at Kensington was, was loosely based on this and uh, they advised on this as well. So That's wonderful. It, it's probably one of the most photographed gardens that you'll ever see. Um, it's been called the Tudor Garden, the Dutch Garden, William's Garden, 
uh, and, and it's been copied all over Has the world. Has been called Terry's Garden? Never called Terry's well, Garden. from now on in, if anyone wants to come see Terry's Garden, we're on the, where are we, the east side now. South. Damn it! <laughs> 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 yeah, we've now we've now gone south of the compass. So turning to the orangery, one, one of the things that I've always loved about historic gardeners is the fact that quite often technology went hand in hand. So I don't know why. I think I, I did a TV show where my character was a bit obsessed with pineapples. So did some research into what pineapples meant for oh, English yeah. people. Yeah. And the realisation that it wasn't just finding the species of pineapple, the variety of pineapple. It was about trying to manufacture a system whereby you could grow them in this climate. <laughs> so they're experimenting with uh, whole heating systems underneath pineries, pipes going through. And so if you had a pineapple, you were proving that you were not only in touch with nature and romanticism, but you were in touch with technology and state-of-the-art sort of development. There was uh, the, throughout the, throughout the country. If you take gardens of of the court and uh, and the country as a whole, the grand houses, there was tremendous rivalry between the various lords and their head gardeners about who could do what first. Mm-hmm. And, and as you quite rightly say, it was all about pioneering technology. And um, the, what you see here is is. Uh, the orangery here the problem with orangeries they're beautiful buildings but they're lousy for growing plants in because <laughs> it's too much brick and not enough glass sure um so but that was a limitation of the time they were it was a limitation of the time so you know gradually as technology moved forward and um structures um you know in in iron were developed glazing bars were developed uh, the taxation on grass a uh, glass was repealed People were able to, uh, you know, work on designs of, of, of buildings for growing plants. Uh-huh. Um, but it, one of the things we found out about, let's the, uh, the, take this, this garden here. This garden here, just as an introduction, this, this, is, is, where, orange, this right? is where all Queen Mary's exotic plants are stood. Okay. So you get all these wonderful oranges on the steps. That's where my Delftware pots go. And um, along the terrace there, that's where, uh, on the privy terrace, all Queen Mary's exotic plants are brought out here in the summer in their fantastic pots. And you, what you see here is something quite unique in this country, and that is a wonderful display of plants in containers, which are a national collection. You seem very enthused by that. Yes. Is this a pet? Well, I, no, I wrote, a, I, I, I wrote a, a degree thesis on it. Okay. Is that um, where you got your doctorate? From? Absolutely, yeah, mm. yeah. So I um, I wrote a degree thesis on this, and um, the degree doctorate came from Rittle College, actually, uh-huh. um, who I do a lot of um, lecturing for. And um, it, this was a real passion of mine. When we built the Privy Garden, we realised that an important element of that garden, the exotic displays that adorn the garden in the summer. Mm-hmm. We didn't have enough, so the next phase is in this job. You open, you close one door, another one opens. Mm-hmm. So we thought well, we've got to put these exotics back. So we built up this collection. I did the research, you know, containers, plants. Where were you looking? Just in libraries and other houses around I, the, the I Europe? Went, I looked at, through all the public records office. I went to Holland. I went to Germany. I, I went to Hetlo in the Netherlands. I went to Herrenhausen in Germany. The reason were I went you to funding those, this yourself, or were you being supported? Oh no, I was supported by the organisation. Fantastic. Hetlo, because that was William's palace in the Netherlands. Herrenhausen, because it was obviously the Hanoverians, who were also great plant collectors. Uh-huh. So that was a great primary source of information for me to write this thesis. I also looked at containers. I looked at where they were positioned, the hierarchy. All, I, I, and did a complete thesis and a restoration plan for this this garden here uh-huh. and for the, um, the the Privy Garden. And we've been displaying them ever since. Is part of your joy of William and Mary, not just because they collected so much and did so much, but because the building's known for Henry VIII and you're trying to diversify that? Well, I, I think we always say Hampton Court is a tale of two palaces. Uh-huh. So the Henry bit is well known. Um, the Baroque is less well known. I actually think that William and Mary do not get the credit that they deserve. Uh-huh. Um, because what William tried to do was to build a new modern palace befitting a new sovereign. Uh, he Unfortunately, he, he never achieved it. He tried to rival Louis XIV's Versailles. 
but he didn't live long enough. But what he achieved in his life, you know, between 1689, when he became king, and 1702, his death, he achieved an awful lot here. Mm -hmm. And he brought wonderful artisans and artists to Hampton Court that then set a craze in this country for building wonderful Baroque gardens and interiors. And... You know, it was during the, his reign and her reign that I think Hampton Court was at its most magnificent. Uh-huh. And I don't until, think... Until now, obviously. And yeah, I, I just don't think they get the credit for it. You know, I don't think that they... Because, because Henry, you know, killed people and he was a tyrant and, um, you know, he wasn't quite... You know, William III was a more controlled... Was a nicer person. A nicer person, yeah. Um, OK, so very, very childish question. Sure. Um, as we walk on to sure. the next place... Um, what's your favourite plant? <laughs> it's impossible for me to answer that, and I tell you for why. It, 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 there's so you know, I there are favourite trees, I have favourite shrubs, and mm-hmm. I have uh, favourite bulbs, perennials. I, 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 I think what I've learned to do is appreciate that every plant has its place. Mm-hmm. And the skill is how you use these these marvellous sort of jewels of nature and arrange them to their greatest effect. Sure. On, on that list of people outside your office, who is the one that you, you personally think is the greatest? Who is the person that you aspire to be like? The person I think is the greatest, without any question of a doubt, is Henry Wise. And the reason I, uh, I picked Wise is because he was the gardener to three monarchs. Mm-hmm. So, started with William III, Queen Anne, George I. Uh, All different, but he managed to undertake some really serious landscaping projects. And he executed all of them with great skill. So, I have tremendous admiration for him. I think he is... I have admiration for all of them, because, as I said, they've all shaped the place that we enjoy today. Mm -hmm. But wise for me... uh, is a remarkable character sort of he also um, as well as being here he also ran the Brompton Park Nursery which is oh it's beautiful yeah it's on, well it's Brompton the Brompton Nursery actually was a hundred acre nursery that's on the site of the V&A now uh-huh. okay. and that was his that was his nursery but uh, the, 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 they came along not that far from Brompton Cemetery no, which okay. the Royal Parks used to look sure, after sure sure and uh, so, yeah, so he's the man I really admire, and I admire them all, but particularly particularly Henry-wise because of stories like what he, what he had to put up with from William III. <laughs> and he obviously he had a very difficult job trying to uh, keep Queen Anne happy mm-hmm. uh, in terms of her gardening requirements and reducing expenditure on the royal gardens, which he did brilliantly. And then, of course, he dealt with George I, who couldn't speak a word of English. So what he was quite a character. So, and, uh, so moving forward, do you know what's, what's your next project that you want to sort of get off the ground? Or is it just the continual maintenance, support and care? No, no, we're looking at all sorts of um, uh, areas. We, we have, through the conservation management plan, um, I've restored two avenues of trees with my team in, in Home Park. Mm-hmm. The Lime Avenues, I'm looking at the condition of these. Let's have a little pop-up here and get a lovely view of the River Thames up there. So I'm looking at that. We're looking at the wilderness area because that area is in, in need of improvement. It's always lovely to come somewhere where the conservation and the heritage are so well respected and yet it's still kept open. And I think that's what your work here has done so well is it's, it's representative of everything that's happened here and making it inclusive to everybody who wants to come here. I think so. And also what we're trying to do is, as well as display the gardens at their historic best, it's also trying to give those little snippets, those narratives, those stories. And, and, and we, there's a different angle to it now. We don't mm-hmm. just talk about the sovereigns. We talk about the gardeners, yeah. the people. Because I, what, you, you can't have a sovereign without the people beneath. What people like is they like to draw parallels with themselves and what people did in those days and how they lived and, mm-hmm. and what they did and how they worked. And, and this, is, this, is, you know, this is history, living history, and uh, this is the real thing. When you come here, you are experiencing something that you cannot get from a computer. Mm-hmm. You're getting the real atmosphere, and you, you can't substitute that.
I'm really sorry to say that I'm going to have to start wrapping this up. Okay. I, I've never been so upset about ending an episode of this podcast before because I feel like we've only scratched the well, surface. Well, you'll have to do podcast two. Part two will be back. Continued. Well, there are, there, are, there are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Sure. So I'm going to run them past you. Okay. Uh, I might even adapt them slightly. Okay. So the first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Oh, oh that's, a, that's a fantastic question. It really is. Um, I, I, I like the I like natural places, real escapism. Places like the Taj Mahal. I'm interested in buildings, mm-hmm. um, great palaces, the Alhambra, these sort of places. Um, Would you go to but, steal ideas or? But I also like natural landscapes. Uh-huh. You know, sort of Nova Scotia, Canada. So what would you the choose? Wilderness. You've got, you've got one, your one place. Where would you go? Oh, I'd like to go somewhere. A, a place that I think is really, really magnificent is Florence and Venice. Uh-huh. I love those places, mainly because I think they are, they are about culture. Mm-hmm. And they, so the two extremes. I like those places, and then the wilderness and the, the culture. I the, like the two extremes. The thing that is so hypnotic about you is is the way that you unify the natural world with the cultural, artistic, historic world. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's, that's always the skill, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's, it's, gardens are always about our interpretation on how to present nature perfected. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, that's, that's the drive. It's, just, it's all about nature perfected, isn't it? How do you perfect nature? Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult because I think quite often nature generally wins um so we steal from nature but we try and uh, i think what you see here around this place is how successive monarchs have tried to compete with each other Mm -hmm. but they've also tried to at first dominate nature sure but then later on to work with nature but hampton court i think is it, it is about Brock. It is about that great era, mm-hmm. and which, which uh, and what I think the most significant thing about Hampton Court is the fact that so many gardens, and it's ironic, really, so many of these formal gardens were swept away by Lancelot Brown, who worked here. Yet this, the garden that he was, um, best the, known the for. Yeah, best known for. Yeah. He, I mean, he was here for 19 years, remains probably the greatest formal garden intact in this country. Yeah, that's hilarious. It's quite ironic, isn't it? I mean, I've, I, we filmed Victoria up in Harwood House, yeah. which is one of his, which is amazing, yeah. and it's so symbolic of him, and Fantastic. it couldn't be more different to this. Absolutely. Um, it just shows you what, what, what he could have, what done, he could if, have done if they'd have up the, up the coffers. I'm kind of glad he didn't. Yeah, uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. And, of course, the great thing is, when you get to the Victorian era... Hampton Court became a yardstick for taste. Mm-hmm. And, of course, people then started to appreciate the antiquity of these wonderful places, as we do now. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, which I didn't actually touch on at all, was about the fashion of plants and mm. how monarchs, certainly with the Dutch coming over with the tulips, their whole new fashion was sent through that everyone, I think, is quite well versed on. But it is, it is fascinating how, because of people, because of clothing sometimes, or architecture, the, the plants start to change and how some things aren't in favour of one year, but in the next that everyone's got a, a, a whatever, a higher... As you say, for me, it, 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 it's not about fashion, it's about taste. Mm. And because fashions change, but I think good taste is... Always remains the same. All, ...will always reign. So, question two. Okay. Um, should we colonise the moon? <laughs> it's maybe not quite appropriate. So, should, should we propagate the moon? Having had the Chinese just up there recently growing cotton plants on the dark side of the moon in a in a space station well why not I mean if you can do it why not I think it's you know in, in generations to come we'll start to look at the the planets and to see if they can make them habitable mm-hmm. and grow things on them you know we might run out of space on this planet in, I think maybe we have so already haven't we why not absolutely why not life's about progression isn't it really? it is indeed and the third question if you could bring any species back from extinction what would it be oh any species back from extinction 
and it, it doesn't need to be animal. It could be plant. Could oh, be... I know what I'd bring back. Okay, go. On. I know what I'd bring back. Um, um, along the end there, there is a menagerie garden or a volley garden, which was a bird garden. Should we head over? Yeah, I just along we've, there. There's we've just got a, time. There's a yeah. there's a bird garden, and it was a huge aviary there. And if I could bring a bird, something back, it'd be a bird. I'd like to fill it full of dodos. <laughs> and that would be a real eye catcher, wouldn't it? You know, I'd love to see a dodo. My uh, my grandmother's name was Josephine, but everyone called her Jojo. <laughs> and uh, I don't know who it was, but some young child in the family couldn't say Joe, and so her nickname became Dodo, oh, and has, is known throughout our family as <laughs> as Dodo. So. Unfortunately, when she passed, um, we were sort of given fridge magnets and cuddly toys and notepads and books. And, like, her, her room, her house was full of gifts of dodos and everything. It's such a shame that they're not around, whether the grandmother or the, the extinct flightless bird. But um, I, I think they're amazing. The dodo is what I would bring back. I, I just think we, it'd be lovely to have them here. This was a huge aviary here okay. for William III. And he had oh, a couple water of nice jays over there. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> looking. Yeah. It's nice that we're getting both. A couple of jays in that tree. A couple of magpies down there on the bench. There's some lovely ones just hiding in there. Anyway, so yeah, so the the aviary. Yes, it's uh, it was here. It, it was called the Volary Garden, mm-hmm. and it was full of exotic birds. And there was oh, all around the walls there were these cages, and they were made with uh, with gold wire. Mm-hmm. So it was really really ostentatious. What year would this have been? This was um, uh, from between 1689 and 1702. So we could even hypothesise that maybe there even was a dodo in there. Maybe. <laughs> it's possible. But there was a collection and there was, it was all exotic birds, peacocks, pheasants, different hens. Uh-huh. So it really was a, it was a bird garden. So, yeah, I'd love to put a dodo in there. Terry, that would be an eye catcher, wouldn't it? Be brilliant. That'll bring the pundits round. Thank you so so much for talking uh, to me. It's been a pleasure, been an absolute delight. It's been a pleasure. If people want to come to Hampton Court, it's open all year round, basically. It is. Yes, it um, is. And basically, come here, talk to all the gardeners who are about, and maybe you'll get lucky and you'll find Terry, because uh, there's so much more I want to ask you. That incredible, absolutely incredible. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. A massive thank you to Terry for giving us so much of his time and expertise. Thanks especially too to Sophie and Adam and to all those at HRP who made this interview possible. And if you want to know more about Terry, Hampton Court and historic royal palaces, then head to their website, hrp.org.uk. And as always, you can find my thoughts on today's episodes in my blog at treesacrowd.fm. We hope you can tune in again next fortnight for something a little creepier and something a little crawlier. But until then, thanks again for listening. Goodbye.